God in the church is a restraining force in this world. Pastor Ed Ray explains. God has taken up residence in us, and you are affecting people around you. You are a restraining force because of the Holy Spirit in you that tamps down the sinlessness of this world. Now, you might argue we're not doing as good a job as we should be in our nation, but we are a force because God is the force and it's the strength, the power in you. And you are important and you are holding back evil. Zion, now filled with hands and in this place gotta dwell with man. Sick be healed and the crippled stand singing hallelujah. My kingdom built with the blood of my son. Selfless sacrifice for everyone. Faith, hope, love and harmony. I said let this world know me by your It's been said that your life is a message to the world around you. This is especially true for us as Christians, and what a hopeful message we have. Well, hello and welcome to Grow in Grace with Pastor Ed Ray. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we're given insight about the end times. There's real hope for this troubled world. The Lord is coming to take his followers to be with him. And beginning on that point from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 3, here's Pastor Ed. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day, capital D, the day of the Lord, will not come unless two things happen. The falling away, literally departure, comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. Now, this is the New King James we're looking at, and it is one of two possible translations, but the best translation is of this statement, falling away, should be departure, and it makes it very clear. It is possible to translate it the other way, and you'll see in a moment why both are correct. They're probably both correct, and Paul used it on purpose. All the early English Bibles, Tyndale, Coverdale, the Geneva Bible, all use the word departing because that's exactly what this word apostasia means, or as they say, apostasia, five syllables, nice simple word, right? They translated it here, falling away. Two times in the New Testament is translated falling away as from the truth. And that's true, that will happen. But what it's really conveying, the Greek word that it comes from, apestimi, I'm giving you these words so it's on the tape so that you can go and look it up. I know some of you are right now on Google checking me out to see if I'm telling you the truth. Apestimi means to leave, to depart, as it is translated in Luke chapter 4, verse 13. Now when the devil, this is Jesus' temptation. Now when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed, same word, from Jesus until an opportune time. So this translation should be unless the departure comes first. Greek scholar Kenneth Wiest, the most probably a renowned Greek scholar in modern days, says it should be departure. And so I'm not giving you some weird little, you know, Redlands Packing House thing. J. Vernon McKee, Dr. David Jeremiah, Dr. John Walvoro, Chuck Smith. So I'm giving you just the center of the road here. But I encourage you to check this out and see if it isn't true, because once you see departure, you go, oh, yeah. The departure, the rapture, is the starting gun 
for the great tribulation. That's exactly what's going on. Now, the other translation is true, the falling away, because when you take a billion or how many there are of us Christians out of the world, there's no hope left. They don't trust in Jesus. Well, some of my friends are going to go to my house and try and find my notes because I've been telling them for a long time. They're going to, oh, no, that idiot was right. <laughs> but everyone else is, they're going to have to put their faith in something else. A new world leader, second part of this. The man of sin is revealed the son of perdition. Dun, 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 dun. Okay. So this is the Antichrist, although Paul doesn't use that word. He is the man of sin here, the son of perdition. One translation says the lawless one. He's called the beast in Revelation 13. Daniel 7 and 8 calls him the little horn. There's 50 different titles for this world leader that is the worst of the worst. Now, Antichrist is actually the Apostle John's term, and it doesn't mean against Christ as much as it does instead of Christ. He's going to say he's Christ. That's what this comes down to. So the day of the Lord, that period of time, cannot begin until the departure, number one, and number two, this guy is revealed, the coming of the man of sin. Okay, now here's the bad news, verse four. Who opposes and exalts himself. He's pretty stuck on himself. Above all that is called God, he thinks he's God. Or that is worshiped, read any other religion, so that he sits in the temple of God, read the definite article, the temple of God, showing himself that he is God, he thinks. All right? So, he's going to put himself above every possible kind of God. Think Hindu, think Muslim, think Buddhist, think Krishna, think all of the possible gods out there. This guy opposes everything that's called God. He will not just be anti-Christ, but he will be anti-any other God, and he will forbid the worship of anything but himself. Little ego problem, okay? Anything that's worshiped as God. And he will sit in the tonneon, is the Greek two words. It means the temple. Now, remember when Paul wrote this in 51 or 52, the temple's still standing in Jerusalem and it won't be destroyed for another 18 years. In 70 AD, Titus will come through, Titus Vespasian, he'd be the emperor later, he's a general, brings in three legions of Roman troops, and they destroy Jerusalem and the temple. Every stone, you remember, Jesus said, every stone turned over because they burned the temple and the gold ran down between the stones. So this is the temple, and it's gone. So how's that going to work? Well, Jesus said something similar in Matthew 24, speaking to his disciples around the Mount of Olivet, and they look across, and Jesus says, when you see, they say, when's the time of your coming? And he said, when you see the abomination of desolation, whoa, not a loaded phrase for most of us, but for a Jew, a very loaded phrase. He's speaking to Jews. When you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, 
then there will be a great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever shall. So when this Antichrist, this man of perdition, this sin, this world leader goes into this place, he's going to say, now worship me. And all the Jews are going to look at each other and go, rut row. <laughs> We're not worshiping you. And they're going to flee to the rocks, to Petra, we believe. So he's there, and he's doing something that already happened when Jesus said it the first time. Antichus Epiphanes IV in 133 BC was one of the four generals that got the southern part of Alexander the Great's kingdom. And he goes to Jerusalem and wants to be worshipped. Nobody will do it. So he takes a pig into the temple and he sacrifices a sow on the altar there to desecrate the temple. The Jews said, no, that's not right. And they started the Maccabean revolt and Hanukkah came out of that. But all of this is what Jesus is referring to. That's the abomination of desolation that happened 150 years before Jesus. He says, when it happens again, when this Antichrist says, worship me, then flee. Just run. We're going to be gone. We're already out of there. But the Jews are going to say, this isn't right. Oh, no. Jesus was the Messiah. And they're going to run to Petra, where there, we have been told, half a million Bibles buried waiting for them in clay jars under the ground. So that's just information for you that's free, just extra stuff. Verse 5. Do you not remember, Paul said to these Thessalonians, don't you remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? We talked about prophecy, which is kind of interesting. Brand new Christians, three weeks old the Lord, they're supposed to know about the Antichrist. And we in the modern church don't often talk about this until we preach through the Bible and then we have to deal with it, right? So it should be part of every believer's understanding, this concept of the rapture and the Antichrist. And now, verse 6, you know what is restraining, what's holding him back, that he may be revealed in his own time. Something is keeping this from happening right now. He's going to tell us in the next verse. For this mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he, capital H, the Holy Spirit, who now restrains, will do so until he, capital H, is taken out of the way. The Holy Spirit's going to be taken out of the way when you leave, when I leave with you. <laughs> you see, because that's the new covenant, he'll put his spirit in you. So you and I are repositories. Yeah, jars of clay. We're little mud jars, but God has taken up residence in us. And you are affecting people around you. You are a restraining force because of the Holy Spirit in you that tamps down the sinlessness of this world. Now, you might argue we're not doing as good a job as we should be in our nation, but we are a force because God is the force and it's the strength, the power in you. And you are important and you are holding back evil. That's what he's saying. But the Holy Spirit is going to leave with us and then something is going to be happening that's pretty incredible. You're listening to Growing Grace with Pastor Ed Ray. He's been encouraging us that we're making a difference in this world. 
Now with part two of today's teaching from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 8. Once again, here's Pastor Ed. Then the lawless one, the man of sin, man of perdition, the Antichrist, will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. So, I mentioned John is the only one that really uses this term Antichrist, and I use it because it's easier to understand what's going on here. In 2 John 1, 7, many deceivers, John writes, have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and Antichrist. That's the concept, the mindset, the theology. 1 John 2, 18, my little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. Even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that this is the last hour. 1 John 2, 22, who is a liar, but he who denies that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. He is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son as both being God. John 4, 3, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming. It is now already in the world. So he is already working. We don't know if he's still alive. My personal belief is that I am part of the terminal generation. Uh, meaning that someone from my generation that saw Israel become a nation, 1948, will be alive when Jesus returns. I could be wrong, but why do I even say that? Because Jesus said, speaking of the fig tree, which is often used as a metaphor for Israel, he said, when you see the buds come out on this fig tree, know that my return has come. The generation that sees this happen will see my return. So, I mean, they might be 114, as someone is alive in the world right now. It may not happen for another 40 or 50 years, but I believe it's going to happen when the last person of my generation will see it, at least that person. Now, but here's the good news. This Antichrist, this powerful man that Satan gives the power, God allows him to give the power to do miracles, Jesus will consume <laughs> with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The headlines that morning will read, Jesus wins all over the world, okay? Now, let me take that and put that into the day. The Thessalonians were without hope. They thought they had missed it. They were discouraged. Many Christians are discouraged in our area. I've had numerous conversations about this presidential election and how hard it is. I saw the words, these words, on a sign at a local church a few weeks back. It said, hope is real. I love that. The dictionary definition of hope is a expectation, an anticipation of good an expectation that good things are about to happen. Now, again, you are called, I am called to be salt and light. In spite of the frustration that you might feel, that I might feel about choosing someone, and I can't help you there. You're going to have to do this one yourself. Pray, but God will show you. Go 
and vote. It is your responsibility as a citizen and as a Christian, go vote. However, the next morning, November 9th, no matter whether the person you voted for wins or the other person wins, Jesus is still the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And everything, and everything we're looking at here is still true. If you have put your hope in politics, you have put it in the wrong place. Now, certainly, I think all of us have learned that lesson. If you've put your hope in Washington, you have put it in the wrong place. Our hope is in Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. Now, do a little check on yourself, a little thermometer reading. How's your hope right now? Where are you in this process? David, King David, understood this 3,000 years ago. And when he was struggling, this is what he wrote. Psalm 39:7. But now, Lord, what do I look for? My hope is in you. Psalm 42, 11. Why are you downcast, O my soul? David's talking to himself. That's okay, see? It's in Scripture. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise Him, my Savior and my God. Psalm 25, verse 3. No one whose hope is in you, Lord, will ever be put to shame. Psalm 33, verse 18. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who respect, who fear Him, who honor Him, on those whose hope is in His unfailing love. That's how you keep your hope up. You read God's Word. Now, this idea of destroyed with the brightness of His coming, Martin Luther understood this, and he wrote a song about it. A mighty fortress is our God. Second verse, let me read it to you to encourage your your hope. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Revelation 19.11. John writes, Then I saw heaven opened, and a white horse was standing there. And the one sitting on the throne was named Faithful and True. He judges fairly. His eyes were bright like flames of fire, and his head had many crowns. A name was written on him that only he knew what it meant. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his title was the Word of God. The armies of heaven, dressed in pure white linen, followed him on white horses. That would be you. From his mouth came a sharp sword, and with it he struck down the nations. He ruled them with an iron rod, and he trod down the winepress. On his robe and thigh were written this title, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We aren't looking for the Antichrist. We're looking for Jesus Christ. Now, there are 774,747 words in the Bible. No, I didn't count them, but my computer claims that, okay? However, for me, 
The second most important word after salvation only appears once in all of the New Testament. It's the end of chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians, and it's a single word that's Aramaic in verse 22. You're looking at old King James is right there looking at you. It says, Maranatha. And it means the Lord comes. Or if you say it as a prayer, it means come, Lord Jesus. They greeted each other with it, that the Lord was coming. Now it puts everything back in perspective as we might struggle through the next few days in our nation. Jesus is coming back. Now, let me close by addressing those of you that may be listening that are atheist or agnostics. Because many years ago, I sat in a service like this, and I didn't believe a thing the person was saying. So I want to tell you a parable of truth. It's short, but it's important. There once was a man who thought he was dead, and so his wife and concerned friends took him to a doctor. The physician listened to him, shook his head, and said, I think I can cure you. I'm going to convince you of the one fact that contradicts the belief that you have that you're dead. I said, I don't care, go ahead. So the doctor was using the simple truth that dead men don't bleed. And so he starts by giving him a bunch of medical books and takes them home and he reads them and some journal articles. And then he asks him to come and view a couple of autopsies, all trying to build on this concept so the man would understand that dead men don't bleed. And finally, the guy said, all right, all right, I accept that. Dead men don't bleed. I, I watched the autopsy. The doctor was waiting for that. He pulls out a needle and he sticks the guy in the arm and blood runs down his arm. The doctor thinks, hey, I've got him. The guy says, good grief, dead men do bleed. <laughs> if one holds on to unproved theories with sufficient tenacity, the truth will make no difference at all. You will be able to create a world all of your own, totally unrelated to reality, and totally unable to be touched by truth. I know this to be true because I wasn't a believer until I was 26 years old, and I used biochemistry to hide behind. Oh, I had it all figured out. But the reality was I didn't want to hear the voices. I didn't want to hear God talking to me into my heart and mind that were being bombarded by these inconvenient truths happening to people all around me. The man in the parable of truth who thought he was dead was in a very real sense dead. Facts no longer meant anything to him. In fact, he had committed intellectual suicide. Dead men don't think. Pastor Ed Ray concluding our time on today's Grow in Grace with a challenge to think and to believe. The evidence is compelling for those who are open to the truth. We're going and growing through a study of the New Testament with Pastor Ed Ray. If you missed part of today's message or would just like to hear it again, go online to thepackinghouse.org or call and ask for a CD copy at 844-77-GRACE. 
That's 844-77-GRACE. We're also on YouTube at Packing House Christian Fellowship. Your support for Grow in Grace is not only needed, but greatly appreciated. And those that do this month will send you Power Through Prayer by E.M. Bounds. Maybe prayer to you is just something you do without much thought before a meal or just another thing to cross off your to-do list. There's great power through prayer, and this book will help elevate your thinking about it. To see how it truly makes a difference, this guidebook provides believers with information about the most effective way to use prayer to better understand God's Word, fully appreciate divine power, and more deeply commune with the Lord. Again, it's our way of saying thanks for your gift of any amount to grow in grace. You can reach us at 844-77-GRACE. That's 844-77-GRACE. By the way, we're big believers in prayer here at Grow in Grace, and we want to pray for you too. Our prayer is that you'll grow in grace as you study along with us. And if you have questions related to our study or a prayer request, please send those our way. Our email address is packinghouseradio at aol.com. That's packinghouseradio at aol.com. And then join us for the next Grow in Grace as our study of the New Testament continues with Pastor Ed Ray. And may God richly bless you as you grow in grace. This program is brought to you by the Packing House Christian Fellowship. Zion, now build with hands and in this place gotta dwell with man. Sick be healed and the crippled stand singing hallelujah. My kingdom built with the blood of my son. Selfless sacrifice for everyone. Faith, hope, love and harmony. I said let this world know me by your